Hi everyone, welcome to Training with Casey, where we explore animal training and living our best lives with animals. I'm Joseph Laughlin, producer of this podcast, and now here's your host, Casey Covert. Let's get started. Hi everyone, welcome to Training with Casey. I'm your host, Casey Cover, founder of SATS, Senalia Animal Training Systems. And tonight, the saga continues. We're talking about bringing the horses home. And so far, we talked about the plan, you know, the decision to bring them home, the plan, how to put the plan to action, working with contractors, and a more time than I realized was put toward plants. Why? Because horses eat plants. They're attracted to eat plants. And my horses are pretty experienced and intelligent, but they don't know everything because every place you go, the conditions are different and there are different weeds. So my horses, I know, have coped with buttercup, dogbane, elderberry, a lot of plants, uh, cherry trees, which can be deadly. But when we got them here, we knew we had a huge challenge ahead of us. And really, it's mostly mostly because of vines. You might be surprised how many different types of vine are in your local area. In my area, oh, that reminds me, there's one I need to check, but I'll do that later. The following vines are common here. Wisteria, jessamine, poison ivy, Virginia creeper, trumpet creeper, grape, honeysuckle, fallopia, and smilax. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine different kinds of vine. Did you have any idea? Furthermore, there are three kinds of Smilax. Oh, man. All right. I can't stand it anymore. I'm just going to look it up real quick to see if Smilax is toxic to horses. I am becoming a world expert in uh, horse toxicities, but I'll tell you what, it may not be soon enough because as much as I try to be on it, the fact is, is I've had some serious failings. All right. So here we look it up. I just look up the name of the plant, Smilax. Toxicity to horses. And it says non-toxic to horses. Yay. Yay. Okay, that's one down because that stuff is persistent. All right. So we have one huge challenge, and that's the wisteria. You might say that here we have wisteria hysteria. Out of everything that we've had to do to bring the horses home, 
dig ditches, make windrows, build a run-in shed, et cetera, et cetera. Nothing compares in the amount of labor and the painstaking and backbreaking aspect of the labor to getting rid of wisteria vines. They grow huge ropes, like thick as your finger, under the surface of the ground. They crisscross every different direction and they get quite thick. They've got big junctions under the ground and they're rough on your skin. I know they're toxic, but they're rough on your skin just when you pull them. So may I remind you that a huge challenge for us so far was getting rid of these vines. And so um, Carson, the guy that uh, does all the bulldozer work and everything, he's great. He came over with his claws on his various machines and started ripping up wisteria vines. But even those machines can't really get them out. He pulled out a bunch of them. He pulled out half a dumpster load. And then we had to go back and fill up the rest of the freaking dumpster. I kid you not. What Carson did in a few hours, like less than half a day, we then continued for the next like week, every day laboriously pulling up and cutting these vines. And we filled up that dumpster. I said goodbye to it today. Now, another complication from that is that we couldn't put the paddock up yet because the wisteria vines are all in the paddock. And so we needed to get them out of the ground where they could keep, um, you know, they keep supporting leaves, new leaves. And you've got to get rid of those new leaves, ASAP, because they enliven the vine roots underneath the ground. And so we chopped them all down and it looked like there was nothing. And within days, there's more leaves growing up. And in a few days, you know, they're knee high. So you go out and chop, chop them again. So anyway, we had a whole dumpster and um, the area that is for the horses is rife with them. But we have a plan. So the first part of the plan was to get as many vines into that dumpster as possible. So even today, as the dumpster guy was coming to take the dumpster away, my 88-year-old mother and I were out there, you know, just pulling wisteria vines and cutting them with sickles and throwing them into the thing. And then we have another plan. So we said goodbye to everything in the dumpster, but we ha still have a lot of wisteria, a lot. And I have 28 stall mats. And I am planning to pave part of the area with stall mats to suppress the sunlight and so on and try to make my job easier that way. Not only make it easier, but prevent the horses from getting to those little tiny new leaves because they do, they eat them. And I tell them that's not good, but they eat them anyway. Now the horses are funny about this stuff because many things 
they know these aren't good and they will not touch them. So I'm going to tell you about one of those. And now I'll tell you about a different one. So the first other plant I'm going to tell you about is called cat's ear. And it looks kind of like a dandelion on steroids. Its leaves are flatter and hairier looking than a dandelion leaf. That's how it got its name, cat's ear. And there's multiple flowers on long stems. So when you walk uh, through a bunch of these plants, it kind of looks like there's just a bunch of dandelions floating on the breeze. And that's no joke because one or two days after flowering, they form the same kind of seeds that dandelions form. And uh, those seeds germinate very quickly. As a matter of fact, within a week, you will have an entire new generation of these weeds. I can tell you with absolute authority. So we um, couldn't fence the main paddock in yet because of the wisteria dumpster. So we made little tiny grazing areas all around the yard. We'd scope it out and we'd put up temporary fencing, which is still pretty laborious. Then we let the horses in. And this one area had light but nice grass and these little dandelion plants. And these smart horses went out and ate the grass and they also ate the dandelion plants. And they didn't really look like it was harmful to them. But they seemed a little bit like hazy and sleepy. And I thought, let me just go check on that plant. Well, that wasn't an easy one because have you ever heard of a cat's ear? Me neither. And I looked for hours on the internet, all the yellow flowers in the state of Virginia, um, flowers that look like dandelions, blah, 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 blah. It turns out I found four in Virginia, hawksbill, hawk something or the other, uh, cat's ear and dandelions, right? Anyway, the hawks ones, those two are not toxic and the horses love dandelion and they have many benefits for horses. But it turns out the cat's ear is toxic and will cause liver failure. But the horses eat it anyway. They even made a point of saying that, that this is a horse, this is a plant that's toxic and the horses will eat it anyway. So I go running out to check. There were no cat's ears. The horses had eaten them all. As in there was not even a sign of the weeds. But there was a lot of other places where these things were growing. And of course, you've got to just get out there and get rid of this plant or your whole area will be taken over. So I... Uh, in the last year had a compression fracture in my spine and oh wow it can really be painful but anyway the treatment is you have to not do certain kinds of tasks tasks where you lean over and pull things or lean over and lift things and so i've made a lot of good progress but now i had all these weeds right 
you know, at the base of the ground that it grows up in a rosette with the tall flowers coming out of the middle of it. And how are you going to get those things out of the ground? They've got long tap roots. So again, my mother, who's always been game to pitch in, she goes out with me and I have the shovel because I can't bend over anyway. And I dig into the ground underneath these things and the ground is silt, silty loam. So it sticks together. It's not as sticky as clay, but it sticks together. And so here's my mom breaking it open and taking all these um, weeds with these long tap roots. And we did probably two or 300 square feet in a laborious, sweaty, hot afternoon. That's the only kind we have out here. And got like half a bag of these plants. Then we cross over and we start doing the next 200 square feet. And we get another half a bag. And then I start looking on the internet for better options. And I found one. Grandpa's weeding tool, I think they call it. This thing is great. It's uh, got cast iron, four-pronged fork, and a little lever. And you spear the ground, and then, you know, over this um, weed that you want to take out. And then you step on this lever, and that closes the forks around the taproot of this plant. And a lot of times you can pull up the whole plant all together. Well, it's not so simple as that, okay? That's a perfect scenario. But what happens is as these things drop seeds around their bases, little baby ones grow up. And you'll, you can have 20 plants in a square foot. And so you can't even tell where the middle of a plant is because all the leaves overlap. So you make your best guess and you try to pull out the biggest one, the mama plant of the whole group. And you do or don't do that. Or sometimes you cut the plant in half. And of course you've got to get the whole tap root. So my mom once again came to my assistance and we tried it a number of different ways, but we ended up, I would spear the plant and, leverage it out of the ground and my mom would pull it off of the little fork and throw it in the bag. We made much, much better progress and we probably got another 300 square feet done in about an hour and a half. It's still backbreaking work. But between the first time we did it, when we cleared an entire area and the second time we did this, which was one rainstorm and about, you know, five days, maybe a week, but probably not. Later, it looked like we hadn't even removed anything the first time. Now, I noticed the plants were smaller in general, but there were plants everywhere. And there's a an urgency to getting these things out of the ground because as soon as they flower, you've got one or two days and then you're going to have seeds blowing around on the breeze and infesting the whole area. Now, if they're just weeds, I'm all for weeds. 
I really try to be as ecologically conscious as possible and support all the different kinds of critters that need to live here, but can't have the uh, horses being poisoned. Or that's not exactly accurate. I poisoned them myself with this stuff the first time, but then we want to not have that problem again. So we made, after we laboriously pulled out these cat's ears, um, I went and checked the area and it looks so nice. There was a lot of grass, kind of fine, but nice grass. And uh, lots of other weeds, like uh, I often look them up, but chickweed and uh, chicory and these little blue flowers and just lots of different things. And one of my favorite ones is called gill over the ground. And I, what I don't like about it is it is a foreign invasive plant. It was imported by Europeans coming here because it was used before hops to clarify beer. And it's in the mint family. And it, it ha I kind of like the smell. And it spreads gently all over the ground and it'll really spread quickly. But it's not too much of a problem because it's easy to pull up and you can pull up, you know, lots of it very quickly and it kind of keeps other weeds from growing. And it has pretty little lavender flowers and it smells. I like the smell. So we uh, fence another area for temporary pasture and we take the horses out and set them loose and nothing happens. They don't eat the grass. They come to the little gate and stand there with anticipation as if, okay, we passed that test. We didn't eat the poison. Now can we go back and eat some hay or some real grass? What? So I go look it up. With gill over the ground, not toxic to us at all all over the place and it's toxic to horses. Fortunately, this one has such a strong taste that the horses generally will not eat it. Great. Now I'll tell you another thing that you have to worry about. It's not just what is growing in the grass, but if you make hay from any place really, these things get combined with your hay bale. And some of them become non-toxic when they dry and some of them stay toxic. So boy, I've really been learning a lot about plants and about how careful you have to be. So I mentioned that the wisteria dumpster went away and we solved the problem with the cats here, although it's equally well it's not equal to the wisteria but it's still bad uh the gill over the ground we're not going to worry about that too much um we're going to the the we did put the horses in there again and we noticed them eating around it we find that if the horses get a chance to learn from their experience 
then a lot of times the next time they see that plant, they will not mess with it at all. But when you are growing your pastures, you've got to check for all these things. So we have an acre of land that is going to be available for grazing, but we have to develop it. And it turns out that a major um, step in developing your pasture is to keep it cut because the broadleaf weeds cannot keep up with the grass in growing. The grass has an advantage. And there are some other things you do as well. But in our acre, when we moved in about 11 or 12 years ago, uh, it was a hay field. So we know there's hay seeds. And it turns out that the seeds remain viable for even thousands of years. You really do not need to go replant any seeds. Well, I wish I'd known that from the beginning because I spent a lot of time researching plants because, um, uh, I mean, uh, pasture plants, what you want to grow instead of what you don't want to grow. And it turns out that horses can't eat Sudan grass. They can't eat buckwheat. Um, sorghum. There's just a lot of things that are pretty toxic to them. But there's also very common weeds that are very toxic. And fortunately, I know that Sarah and Affair have lived around these weeds and they know about them. Jimson weed, horse nettle, that's everything in the tomato family. Um, ooh, water hemlock. I think it's cow hemlock is another one. You, that's a landscaping plant. That's extremely toxic. Oleander, azaleas, rhododendrons, mountain laurel. It goes on and on, but things that grow frequently around here, like burdock is really good for our livers. It's not good for horse livers. And we know that's growing back there. So, I also know that Sarah has been around a lot of pasture burdock and knows her way around it. So that's okay. But you don't want to be supporting these poisonous plants if you could be growing high quality forage instead. So first we learn what the plants are and then we go to manage them. And I studied a little bit about pasture management from uh, Joel Salatin on one of the online courses. And I really like the approach. I'm sure I'll be studying a lot of other pasture management in the time to come. So where do we stand now? Well, we're about to actually fence in the permanent paddock. And according to Mr. Salatin, you want to have a good physical fence, like a physical barrier. We're using livestock wire and fence posts, and that will go around the perimeter. You want to have that so that if the horses get out of the internal area, something will keep them on your property and off the highway. Then um, there's the paddock fence. And that will be similar, and that will 
you know, it'll be the livestock wire and probably with a board across the top, definitely with a white stripe. These guys have a hard time seeing these wire fences and you definitely do not use barbed wire with horses, although it's fine to use it with cattle. So then in the acre that will be pasture, we will be putting up a perimeter of electric wire and it only needs to have one strand for horses. But you have to make sure that nothing's growing up under that to short it out so it takes maintenance. And then what we're going to do is, if you imagine the perimeter fence is kind of like the sides of the ladder, then we'll go in with temporary fencing and cordon off little slices of this pasture about what the horses could eat in one day. And then the next day we'll move them to the next slice and the next day, the next slice. And we'll see how long it takes them. I think these two uh, working together on eradicating all plant life in the area will probably graze the entire acre definitely in less than 20 days. I think it would be amazingly good if it lasted for 20 days. And then what? Well, that question is partially unanswered because we've been investigating like, okay, do we have more yard where they could be? Yes, because they're safe to eat the dogwood trees, but they might kill them. But they're not safe to eat the oak trees. So you have to watch out for that. And so it goes. So there's a little bit more grass that we could fence off for them. And then there's a huge, beautiful area called the septic field. But we've already read that they're likely to not eat the beautiful green grass because it's high in phosphorus. But also in the summertime, when there are flies, the horses will stamp the ground to knock the flies off, I guess. But the upshot of it is that on a day when there are a lot of flies, they do so much damage to the pasture, it's not funny. And if you add any rain to that, I mean, it's oblivious. Not oblivious, it's in, it's obliviated right away. So we put them in an area. It was a nice, cool day. Didn't have a lot of flies yet. And, um, you know, they just kind of cut all the weeds down and you know, they ate everything down kind of close to the ground, but no dirt showing through or anything like that. Give it a week. It's starting to look better again. Put the horses on it, a little rain. And there was mud showing through everywhere. It was like they thought they were stamping grapes and instead they were eradicating the grass. So interesting. I thought they might have, you know, kind of a little more sense about how they treat their own grassland, but they don't. So they know what not to eat, but they don't know how to eat their grass to keep it in the best condition for their future consumption. 
I guess they're like people. They just think that they're going to take what they want, throw their trash everywhere, and there'll always be another place for them to go. So um, we start realizing that part of pasture management isn't just figuring out the fencing, which means in our case, we're going to have to figure out all the electric fencing, what kind of chargers to get and all that. And I think we do know more on that another time. But we also have to figure out the management of various pests. So flies, what are we doing for flies? We bought a bunch of fly wasps. They're teeny tiny. They come in these bags in uh, fly larvae that, you know, they were laid in fly larvae. And then as they hatch, they want to go out and find more fly larvae. And we're encouraging them in that. We take them out, and what you do is you pick up a little bit of dirt, and like you dig a little tiny shallow hole, and you shake some of this. It's like sawdust with these fly larvae, and then, of course, the wasps are starting to get out. And you shake those into this little depression, and then you gently cover it up with a little bit of dirt or straw or something like that to protect these guys. And... They're tigers. They go out and they look for flies to infest, but they're very, very small. You can barely see them. And I think they are doing a good job because we got the first ones around the end of June and we just got the second group. And we have so many mosquitoes right now but we actually don't have anywhere near as many flies. In the meantime, another thing we did is we found a fly spray that has been tested and, and lasts, you know, you spray it on, it actually is effective for like eight or nine hours. And so we're using that as well. So we will be getting a trap also or some traps but mostly fly wasps and the spray. And then you try to keep everything clean so that the flies will not be attracted. Well, good luck on that. Good luck on that. Dave went out and cleaned the horses and they're in a small area and we're cleaning up everything, not just what's inside the stall, but everything in the yard. And he got two full buckets. I went out a couple of hours later and I filled another two buckets. He came back or I went out and fed them in the afternoon. I filled another bucket and then he went out and filled another two buckets. This is no kidding. Like every couple of hours we see there's eight or nine poop piles. So we talked about improving the forage and part of the forage improvement is uh, giving them, giving the plants nutrition. And for this, the horse manure can be excellent, except 
it takes special timing because if you just dump the horse manure on there, it will attract flies and other parasites. And so you're kind of going to end up increasing the parasite load on your property. So probably a better thing to do is to compost this stuff and spread it later. But then it's another matter to collect all this stuff. Now in the paddock that we have, the temporary paddock, the horses have already eaten the grass down to the ground. So it's pretty easy to pick up the poop. Not so pleasant, but it's easy. However, when they get out there on the main pasture, the one acre of pasture, it's probably not going to be so easy to pick it up. So I, do you think I have an idea? Of course I have an idea. So what's this idea? A horse latrine. I want to design a setup so that the horses can back up to this thing, poop and or pee right in it. And then we come at the end of the day and wheel it over to the windrow and, you know, compost whatever and also add it to the windrow to feed everything that's growing on the windrow, which, by the way, it started out as all wood several weeks ago, and now it's already covered with plants. Amazing, really. So, pasture management. In short, you try to eradicate the plants you don't want. And then you try to give the grass a head start by mowing it frequently. We use fly wasps to control flies. And we strategically plant these rascals wherever it looks like a fly would like to be, <laughs> you know, by, by the manure pile where there's uh, food spilling, that kind of thing. And then we have the issues of uh, water, making sure that the water is draining off the land to protect the pasture. And we'll leave it there. But all of those things, it's a lot and a lot more complicated than I thought it was. I already had an agricultural degree. I didn't think this was going to be any big deal. It's, it's a lot more complicated than I imagined. Wish me luck. I need it. I got to tell you that two hours worth of wisteria vines barely would fill a, um, I can't think of words tonight, a wheelbarrow. So it's a laborious process. Oh, and I forgot to tell you one other thing. I got 28 stall mats and I only needed nine to actually do the lean to the run in for the horses. What am I going to use the other ones for? You turn them upside down where there's more texture on the back of the mat. I'm going to pave the entire apron in front of the lean to, and we're going to try it. Do the horses skid out or does this work? And if it works, what it will do is suppress the wisteria we're paving straight out to the round pen. 
So that's going to give us a way to walk out there without getting muddy and all that. And what about maybe even around the round pen? Like I could use my mat strategically to kill wisteria all over the place and not have to pull it up by hand. Now, one other thing is it was on my strategy list to get goats. And the goats would be for two or three purposes. Um, one is that they're really cute. They're really cute and they're very funny and they're a lot of fun. I really like those. But their real job is to eat the freaking poison ivy and the honeysuckle. The honeysuckle's killing trees right and left. And it's really difficult to keep up with it, especially when you're busy pulling wisteria vines. So that's one of the actual jobs for the goats. And the other one is to be horse friends. However, what I learned is that um, apparently fencing goats is fraught with risk and difficulty. As Joel Salatin said, if it'll hold water, if your fence will hold water, it will hold goats. That's not very encouraging. We'll see. We'll see how that goes. Maybe we'll rent some goats for long enough to kill all the poison ivy and a lot of the other things, the honeysuckle and a lot of the other taller weeds and saplings. Because even though we bush hogged this entire area that the horses are going to be in, uh, everything keeps growing up from the stumps. So it's not a one-step process. Okay, if you have experience with any of this, ideas, encouragement, please go ahead and comment. And as always, your likes and your um, subscriptions are really helpful to getting this word out. Not just about the goofy things like bringing the horses home and what that's all about. That's kind of more of a memoir. But the actual training information and management information that can really help animals. Hey, thank you very much. I appreciate you sharing some of your time with me. Take care and we'll see you soon. Hey fans, are you enjoying training with Casey? Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Casey Cover on YouTube. That is youtube.com forward slash C slash Casey Cover. Also, give the podcast a like, share, and comment. Thanks for joining us. Come back for more news and views on animal training and living with animals. Stay at the top of the pack with Casey. This is Joseph Laughlin, producer of Training with Casey. See you next time.